good thing. So do you enjoy the YWAM cakes? Good, and hopefully that's uh, going to get somebody closer to where they need to go. Right, uh, let's uh, pray again. Is this thing still rustling quite a bit? If it is, I'll, I'll change it, but, but let's refocus again after that break. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of uh, fellowship and relationships that we enjoy in a church community. And we pray for your blessing upon our relationships, that they would be good and wholesome and, uh, yeah, and pleasant for us, Lord. How good and how pleasant it is when, when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And bless this time now as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to each one of us. Amen. Well, let me just use a hand. One, two. If there's one thing I really don't like, is microphones that don't sound right. So uh, let's just go old school. Right, so please open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. Everything that I'm going to refer to is on the screen. And today our story is set in Greece. This is not an advert for a holiday. This is um, just to give you some context. There's a, a simple map on the right. And then uh, I know some of us are so... Uh, into Google Maps, I thought I'd include that as well. So the, the cities in Greece that you need to be aware of for today's story, Thessalonica up at the top, then Berea, and then coming down Athens. So Act 17 covers Paul's travel, oh, sorry, in, in, that, in that area. So let's read from Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through, two places, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Jump to verse 10. As soon as it was night, because there was opposition and persecution, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. That's our second city moving down. On arriving, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Again, there's persecution. When the Jews in Thessalonica, that's from the previous city, learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. He, he moves on to get away from trouble. Paul and Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. 
Now Paul's in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. We're at verse 16. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm proclaiming to you. And then there's a presentation of the gospel, and he quotes some of their own poets, and then it all comes to an end with a description. Verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Right, so that is our, our reading today, and I, I hope a lot of it sank in. I often think that expository preaching is a little bit like doing a comprehension when you were still at school. You know, you kind of read the passage and then you've got to work out, well, what is it that the passage really said? What, what's the author trying to convey and the like? So this is going to be a 10-point sermon, believe it or not. I know Baptists are only meant to have three, but I'm giving you an extra seven. Um, and it's all on the theme of how do we share the message of Christianity with other people? So that, that's what our theme is today, and I think this passage has got a great deal to say to us. So my first point is this. There is no one way to share the gospel. Okay, there's no one way to share the gospel. We see here when Paul is in Thessalonica, he, he shares it in a particular way when he's in Berea, in another way, and in Athens in multiple different ways. So sometimes Paul spoke in synagogues, other times he's in the marketplace where people are buying fruit and vegetables and meat. Sometimes Paul would hire a lecture room. He did that, I think, for a year, did he not, in one particular place. And every lunchtime, he would be there to talk to people about the Christian faith. Sometimes he would talk to people at the side of the road, sometimes meeting in, in people's homes, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes in groups. And Paul describes his way of, of connecting with people, how there's no one way to share the gospel. I don't know if any of you ever saw the TED talk about 
tomato sauce, that there's no one right tomato sauce. There's only the flavor that's right for the person that's going to buy that one. And that's why there are multiple flavors of sauces for sale. Okay, so anyway, that, that was by the way. Here's Paul describing how he does evangelism, how he shares his faith. He says, I'm free, okay? But when I'm with Jewish people, verse 20, then, then I become like a Jewish person to win them. When I'm with people who are under the law, in brackets, though I myself am not under the law, I become like those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I'm not actually free from God's law. I do this. To the weak, I become weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. What I want to point out in this passage is that when Paul is with Jews who respect the authority of the Bible, then in the synagogues he uses the Old Testament scriptures to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. When he's with Jewish people, he, he presents the message a particular way. But when he's down in Athens with people that are Greeks, that are philosophers, that do not accept the authority of the Old Testament, then he doesn't argue from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. He even quotes from some of their own philosophers, and he presents the gospel in, in a different way. This is why no one can teach you a set way to, to share the gospel with other people. A while ago, this was done in Christian circles. There were courses like EE3 and other courses. There was the four spiritual laws that I used often as a younger Christian to share the gospel with other people. You know, num law number one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Law number two, you're a sinner and that's why your life's a mess. Okay, that's my paraphrase. <clears throat> Law number three, your sin separates you from God. Law number four, God died, Jesus died on the cross for you. You need to be born again, believe, you know, and then everything's going to be sorted. And that kind of gospel presentation may have worked in a homogeneous, slightly Christianized society. But there is no one way to share the gospel. Even the Bible doesn't give us a four-line summary of the gospel. When God wanted to explain the gospel to us, he had to inspire the writing of four long books to explain the gospel to us. All of the letters of Paul are pretty much designed to explain further what the gospel is. Nobody can summarize the gospel in four neat statements. And if you think you can, I would graciously say to you, I think you don't actually understand the gospel then. Because the gospel is so much more than getting a soul into heaven. The gospel is about God redeeming all of creation. And that certainly didn't appear in the four spiritual laws, or even in E3. 
This is not a weakness of the gospel. It is a strength. There are some basic tenets, much to do with the death and resurrection of Christ. But the gospel can't be neatly summed up. And it depends on who we're speaking to. Here's that reference from Paul down at the Areopagus, which was like a public speaking venue for professional philosophers. When he's preaching the gospel there, he doesn't share the four spiritual laws. He, he quotes one of their philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being. I always used to think that was a verse from the Bible. It's become a verse from the Bible, but only because another Greek poet said it first, and then it got included in the Bible. So this is my first observation. There's no set way to present the gospel. It very much depends on who you're speaking to. The gospel is too big, too glorious, too amazing to be distilled down to four neat ideas. When Paul's with people that believe the Bible, he uses the Bible. When he's with people that don't believe the Bible, he doesn't use the Bible. In a multicultural, multi-faith environment, the gospel is profoundly complex to share. Even the word God means so many different things to different people. The idea of sin, the concept of heaven, what righteousness is. These ideas are not, there's no a common understanding of what all of these things are. Even salvation. And this is why it might take a missionary 20 years before they lead their first person to the Lord. We have to understand where people are at and make sure the message we share is, is, is the right message for that person in that context. Moving swiftly on. Don't worry, that was a very long point. The other nine are, are much shorter. Another observation in my spiritual comprehension test. I notice in this passage that in every situation there are those who warmly respond to the message of Jesus. And that's so good to know. The crazy thing is we never know who it's going to be. That person that you think is going to make such a good Christian, you know, they're, they're just there. Yeah, they might never give their lives to the Lord. And then that other person who's living a debauched life of whatever, they're right there, and when they hear about Jesus, they're on board. It was the prostitutes in Jesus' day that most warmly received his message. I was, I, whenever I preach, I always try to use biblical terms and put them into our context. So I was trying to think, who, who are the tax collectors in South Africa today? And, and I know who it is. It's the state capture crowd. It's, it's these kind of pseudo-government officials practicing corruption on a large scale. 
That's who in the first century tax collectors were. They were Jewish people that worked for the Romans, had some kind of connection there into government and used their position to just rake off thousands for themselves. It was the tax collectors too that warmed to Jesus' message and that were rushing into God's kingdom ahead of all the good people. We never know who it is that's going to respond to the gospel. That's an exciting point and an encouragement to us to share our faith. Look at us here today. This odd assortment, and I'm including myself, of people. But most of us here today have come to believe the gospel, and here we are. God's put us into a family. It's like, who'd have thought we'd be together? You just never know who it is that's going to believe. My third point today is that in every situation, the point is made by the biblical author that there are women who believe. In verse 4, in verse 12, and verse 34, in each of the big cities that are mentioned where Paul goes, the point is made, and I think it's significant that it included, that prominent women became believers. And the gospel really did appeal to women. Far from oppressing women, the gospel message empowered women. And women flocked after Jesus. Women played a prominent role in the founding of the church and in the ministry of Jesus. Take a look at this uh, reference here in Luke 8. It talks about Jesus traveling around from one village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It says the 12 disciples were with him. Okay, this is when Jesus is going on his ministry tours. The 12 disciples are with him and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and whatever. They'd, they'd become Christians. They'd been followers of Jesus. There's this group of women that are traveling around with Jesus and the 12 disciples on their mission trips. Verse 3 is fascinating. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. This is a high-powered couple, and the woman is using her influence and her money. Her name is Susanna. These were the women helping to support them out of their own means. Here we've got a bunch of women bankrolling Jesus and the disciples and their ministry tours. Prominent women were reached by the gospel. My fourth observation in here, this passage, Acts chapter 17. There are always going to be those who oppose us when we share the gospel. You've probably experienced this already. Verse 5, there are some bad characters that, I'm not sure who they are, but they're simply described as bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot. That's what happens when you share the gospel in some places. All of us were absolutely horrified by the massacre in New Zealand Friday week ago. 50 people were killed by a lunatic right-wing gunman. And it made headlines around the world, and rightly so. 
But I can assure you there are, there are Christian churches being burnt down every single week. Massacres on as bad a scale as what in New Zealand. And the mainstream media won't even mention them. Christian persecution is a reality today. We see persecution in Berea. People come and agitate the crowds. We see in Athens people saying they, they sneered at Paul. And this can be hard for people that are more sensitive. Nobody wants to face rejection, ridicule. In those days, there was serious opposition. You could die. You could be tortured, sent to the Colosseum, sent to, sent to prison, which were ten times worse than our prisons today. Have your property confiscated. That's why in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews say, Hey guys, look up. You haven't even resisted to the point of shedding your blood yet. No. Terrible persecution. Acts chapter 9. Saul, who later became Paul, is standing there as the first Christian is stoned to death. I think the gospel is offensive to the human heart and that we need to prepare ourselves for persecution. In South Africa right now, there is a move afoot to regulate the Christian church. There is a commission for the protection of religions, linguistic groupings, etc. And they're wanting to register everybody in South Africa who teaches or preaches in this country. What they don't understand is that as Baptists, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. So they left the license, the lot of us. But it's, it's serious stuff and it's worrying stuff that the government wants to start vetting what, what gets said in churches. There is a line there. And although terrible things get said in churches, and it's not right, and pastors are committing crimes, and they need to go to jail for spraying doom in people's faces and faking resurrections and stealing money, money and abusing and sexual harassment, they need to go to prison. But the way to solve that crime is to use the laws of our country. Not to start clamping down and, and bringing government interference to churches. The good news is that if you're a young parent, you're still going to be able to spank your two-year-old. Last week, it would seem that the government has backed off on that one. Very good. Because you can't negotiate with a two-year-old. A, a gentle smack on the thigh works wonders. But the government is wanting to control what can be said. Hate speech, outlawing, uh, saying that homosexuality, for example, is a sin. I read this news article yesterday, and probably the news broke on Friday. The Dutch Reformed Church voted to accept homosexual ministers and to solemnize, solemnize, you know what I mean? I'm getting muddled up with sodomize, which is def definitely not what I'm wanting to say. So the Dutch Reformed Church voted in favor of all of that a few months ago. Then there was a big 
backlash from their members, so they backtracked and said, actually, we're not going to ordain homosexual clergy and allow for practicing homosexuals to be ministers. Then they were taken to court. On Friday, the judgment came, no, you, th that is not acceptable. The government, well, the courts have now said they've ordered the church to allow ministers in same-sex relationships and same-sex civil, civil unions. And the Dutch Reformed Church has decided not to appeal this judgment. But hopefully there'll be a big backlash again and then they'll change their mind like they did earlier. But this is serious stuff because you've now got the government and secular authorities telling the church what is and isn't sin. They're usurping the authority, God's authority. Here's an example from further afield. This poor man was preaching the gospel in London. It went viral. I think they regret arresting him. And you can watch it all on YouTube. But this poor guy was just preaching the gospel, not preaching against anybody, not insulting anybody. Got arrested, his Bible snatched away, put in a police van, driven miles away and dumped. Uh, caused a massive outcry. And so there is religious persecution in Christian countries. People have been locked up already in Canada for, for, saying, for sharing God's word. But internationally, there's terrible persecution of Christians. Those countries that are theocracies, Islamic countries, and you can look on a website like Open Doors to see what's really happening. So wherever the gospel is preached, there will be those who, who gladly receive it. But there will also be opposition. Another observation in this passage that I see Paul worked as a team. We sometimes think of Paul as this isolated individual who was this great evangelist. But he moved around in a group just like Jesus told the disciples to, to go out two by two. We read about Paul and his companions. And I think this is one of the keys to sharing our faith, to work together with other people. One of the easiest ways we can do this is by throwing dinner parties in our, at our houses. Invite people who are not Christians to come and experience Christian fellowship. And I see that evangelism can be done as we go about our normal lives. Verse 2 says, as was his custom, Paul shared the gospel in the synagogues. If you're a soccer mom, you don't have to do anything different to what you're doing already. Just share the gospel with the other soccer moms. If you're part of the plumbers association, that's where God wants to use you. Another thing I see in Paul's evangelism is how multifaceted preaching the gospel is. We read that Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days. Look at the verbs used. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving and proclaiming. Let's unpack some of the, these different activities involved in evangelism. Sometimes you've got to reason with people. Show them that what they believe is logically stupid. We reason with people. 
Sometimes people don't accept the gospel because they don't have enough information. That's where explaining comes into it. Sometimes if they already accept the scriptures, then there's proving from the scriptures. Sometimes there's just proclaiming. This is when you don't explain, prove, rationalize. You just say, boom, this is it. Proclaiming. But there's a place for logic, rational thinking, argumentation. This was how Paul won people to the Lord. Do you know what I don't see in this passage? I don't see Paul doing signs and wonders. Now, I'm not against signs and wonders, but there's often talk about it's through signs and wonders that people come to believe the gospel. But I don't see any signs and wonders of the supernatural kind in any of Paul's outreach here. I'm just sharing that because I think it's, it's another side of the perspective about the role of miracles. Jesus even played down the role of miracles. Remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when uh, Lazarus goes to Abram's bosom and the rich man's in hell, and he says to Jesus, you know, this whole gospel preaching, nobody's going to believe it. But if somebody rises from the dead, then, then my brothers will believe. And do you know what Jesus' response is? He doesn't say, yes, that's a good idea. What we need is someone to rise from the dead and that will convince them. Jesus shakes his head, no, that's not going to help. Even if somebody rises from the dead, they aren't going to believe. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let that speak to them. Another thing that really struck me about the other side of miracles and the weakness of miracles is when Jesus is on the Damascus road and he meets up with some people, they don't know it's Jesus. He's now trying to persuade them that the Messiah has risen from the dead. If it had me, I'm not going to do it, don't worry, but if it had been me, I would have yanked up my shirt and said, ta-da! <laughs> see see the, the hole in my side? Check out my hands. Miracle, I'm back. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that, oddly. Instead, it says, starting with the Scriptures and the Old Testament, he goes through the Bible explaining that the Messiah has to rise again. I don't know what you want to do with that, but... It's just very interesting. Now I'm going to get a little bit more personal, if we haven't been personal enough. Paul's success in evangelism, if I can use success in inverted commas, was because he cared so much about the people he was trying to reach. When he's in Athens, we read verse 16, while Paul waited in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. There's a difference between being judgmental. And as Christians, we think we're better than people who make an absolute wreck of their lives. We can be very judgmental. But it's different to be distressed. Because of what you see and experience. Why is Paul distressed when he's in Athens? Because he sees God is not getting the worship God deserves. 
He knows that pain and suffering follows when people worship idols. He understands that people are going to hell. That people are missing out on a relationship with Jesus. And that distresses him. And the question is, does it distress us? In Romans 9, Paul says these profound words. He says about the Jewish people, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. He says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. I wonder how many of us have great sorrow and unceasing grief because the people we live and move with and rub shoulders with aren't worshipping God. It was Paul's passion that motivated him. Very akin to this point is how well do we understand and appreciate the culture of the people we're trying to reach? Again, Paul's not judgmental. He, he's a highly educated person, and he's, he's obviously dis studied the Athenians. He can talk to them about the finer points of their culture. He compliments them. He says, I see that in every way you are very religious. He doesn't condemn them or hold up a sign, you know, saying some terrible slogan, as we see in Christian demonstrations. He commends them. I see you're, you're very religious, and I want to help you on your journey. Notice Paul's posture. Like I said earlier enough, he he can refer to their, their altar to an unknown God. He realizes that they have realized there's a God out there that they don't know anything about. But they know there's a God out there. So they worship the unknown God. And Paul finds that as a point of connection. And he uses what we call, uh, what kind of theology is it? Uh, Natural theology, when you argue from nature to, to prove his point, and he talks about God and who God is and what God's done. But notice Paul's ability to find common ground with people, to seek out those natural points of contact, to find out where the, the ache is in the hearts of those he's trying to reach. What's... What's that missing puzzle piece in that person's life that you can come with the gospel tailor-made for them and plug that hole for them? That's what evangelism is all about. Getting to know the people you're trying to reach and being able to explain how the gospel will meet their need. And finally, point 10. At the end of the day, we do need to call people to repent. That's what the gospel's about. I forgot to mention this point earlier, but let me bring it in now. One of the best personal Bible studies I've ever done is to go right through the book of Acts, word by word, and identify every time the gospel is preached in the book of Acts. And on my analysis, there are 22 occasions when the gospel is preached. 
And then once I'd identified the 22 places where the gospel message is preached, I look to see what is contained in that message each time. And lo and behold, not once is God's love ever mentioned. Okay, let that sink in again. On the 22 occasions where the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, at no point is God's love mentioned. But yet we today in our culture have made God's love for people the kind of primary point of contact for presenting the gospel. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that just didn't appear when the apostles ever preached the gospel. So you can draw whatever conclusion you've done, you want to. And to make your life easier, all this research is on our church's Facebook page. Um, our new intern, Lucky Mohakane, uh, wrote it up for me, and all the information's there. You can take a look at the 22 examples of the gospel being presented and actually see what is presented. And mainly it's a call to people to repent of their sins, and mainly it's about the resurrection of Jesus. In the past, God overlooked ignorance, Paul writes, or says at the Areopagus. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's a pretty good example of the kind of gospel message that the apostles are preached. It's a call to repentance. The gospel was even referred to as the gospel of repentance. And then we get all the typical responses. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. There's the opposition. But others said, we want to hear you again on this. And we read again about those who were believers, became believers. And a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So I'm through. To summarize the sermon, we've been called to make disciples. There's no one way to do it though. There's always going to be people around us who will respond to the gospel. That should be motive for sharing. But there'll always be opposition when you open your mouth. Evangelism can be a team effort. There's a multifaceted approach. Proclamation, reasoning, studying the scriptures. But we really do have to care. And we need to make the effort to understand where people are at. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, you've told us to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them and to teach them to obey all that you have commanded. Lord, we receive this commission from you and we pray for your grace and your power to make disciples. Help us, Lord, to have hearts that are moved by the predicament of the unsaved. Help us, Lord, to, to be able to spot those points of contact, to be able to show how the gospel meets human need. 
And we just pray, Lord, for a fresh empowering of your spirit. You said you will receive power and you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're at an end of the earth down here in Cape Town. Lord, give us this power to, to make disciples. Move our hearts. Give us understanding. And thank you that everywhere we go, you are going to draw people to yourself. And Lord, it's always a surprise to see who that's going to be. Help us in this endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.